And last week we looked at Hebrews 10. And the main verse in contention last week was Hebrews 10.26. And the misunderstanding people have of that verse. And uh, how it's misused. and So hopefully after last week it seems more understandable. Uh, how that verse is supposed to be used biblically, what it means in context, and uh, with the rest of the Bible in consideration. Um, you know, the rest of that, you know, of course, 29 can be applied to other things besides the Jewish people going back to the Old Testament sacrifices. That can be applied to other things as well. But Hebrews 10.26, if you sin willfully, is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It can't be applied to any willful sin there is. We must understand that. Um, it would contradict the rest of Scripture, especially 1 John 1, 9 through chapter 2, verse 1. And so hopefully that was more understandable last week, and we can all use it more properly. And if someone comes to you with a misunderstanding of that Scripture, you can explain it to them better and help them understand so they don't feel condemned unnecessarily. Um, Oh, I, we gave quite a few verses. I don't remember every single one I gave, uh, but um, but that that was just one of the ones I mentioned. You know, because First John one nine, he's writing to Christians there. If we confess our sins, so you have to have sinned in order to have a sin to confess. And First John two one, you know, if we sin, there's an advocate with the Father. And so you know, there's definitely lots of scriptures we could we could go through again. But I just wanted to kind of you know. Uh, rehash that real quick and um, you know if you have further questions about this you know you can come and we can talk about it later on uh, but today we're going to get into Matthew 24 and we're not going to get real in depth on 24 today it's a very important passage of the Bible in order to understand eschatology end times thing eschatology means the last things the doctrine of the last things and so to understand these things, this is a very important passage to understand, and I think this passage alone refutes all the false doctrines out there about this, about the end times. You know, stuff like preterism, postmillennialism, uh, amillennialism, pre-trib rapture—all those things are refuted by this one chapter, I believe. But before we get into what this chapter is teaching, what I want to talk about—a very important topic that goes along with this—is why. Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are two completely different discussions. Okay, um, so let's go ahead and start with that. I want you to keep your your thumb on both pages here. Turn turn to Luke 21 and keep your thumb on Matthew 24, so you have both. And we're going to go back and forth a little bit here today. And I'm explaining to you why uh, Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are not the same conversation. Okay, so let me start in Matthew 24 and verse one. And it says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. So they're still in the area of the temple at this point. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Or surely I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another, and there shall not be, uh, that shall not be thrown down. And verse 3, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives. Now you see a difference here? They're no longer near the temple. The Mount of Olives is a long way away from the temple and the buildings of the temple. Okay? Let's go to Luke 21. 
And we see in Luke 21, we'll start in verse uh, 5. Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned, the beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. So it seems very similar to first what he says in Matthew 24, 1 and 2. And then in verse 7, So they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be? And what sign will it be when these things are about to take place? So you see in verse 7, he's there asking questions. But let's go back to verse 37 here of Luke 21, I mean, forward to verse 37. It says, In the daytime he was teaching the temple, but at night he went out and stayed in the mountain called Olivet. So what I'm going to propose to you is that Luke 21, all of it, this discussion here is happening when they're still around the buildings of the temple. But in Matthew 24, all that teaching happens on Mount Olivet for the Olivet Discourse. Okay, and if you look at the questions asked in Matthew 24 and verse 3, it says, Now he sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. Okay, And in, in verse 7 of Luke 21, they asked him, saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and what will be the sign of these things are about to take place? Now, of course, the things he's asking is asking about there are the things he just spoke about. The things that adorn the temple and how they're going to be thrown down, not one stone left upon another. That's the question they're asking him about. Now, if I'm right, which I am, according, I think verse 37 is saying this in Luke 21, that this was all discussed in the daytime, teaching in the temple. And then Luke, Matthew 24, is that in the nighttime, teaching at Mount Olivet, um, then the things they discussed in Luke 21 starting in verse 5, going through verse 36, these are the things that when the disciples came to him at night, they said in verse uh, Matthew 24, verse 3, these are the things he was asking about. Tell us, when will these things be? So the Luke 21 discourse happened near the temple buildings. Then they walked out to Mount Olivet. The last things they discussed in Luke 21 are the things they're saying, Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age. So they're not, they're not even at this point in Matthew twenty four three. They're not even asking about what he said in Matthew twenty four two. Because if Luke twenty one, if that's happening all in the temple gates, all near, near the temple, he's already answered those questions. They're not asking for those questions. The answer to the question again. They're asking for the answer to that last thing he talked about in verses. Um, 34 to 37. And it says, of Luke 21, it says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it cometh a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always, that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. So in Luke 21, Jesus discusses two things. He discusses the end times, and he discusses the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Okay, I'm going to get to some history here in a minute, but he discusses two things here. But the last thing he discusses, starting in verse 25 of Luke 21, going through verse 36 of Luke 21, he's discussing the end times there. Those are the last things he discussed with his disciples before they left the temple area and the buildings and went out to Mount Olivet, where they asked him in Matthew 24, 3, tell us when will these things be? And tell us what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age. 
you have a question, brother? No, no. He, he, he discusses other things, too, b- before that. But my point in Luke 21 is that he's discussing two things. Okay, I'll get to the specifics here in a second of where he's discussing what. He's discussing two things. One is the end of t- end times, and two is what will happen to the temple. They were looking at right then that not one stone be left upon another. Okay? Um, but we see that's all happening, I, I think, according to verse 37. It's all happening in the daytime while he's teaching in the temple area. But Matthew 24, that whole discussion, none of it is about the temple that they were looking at. All of it is about the future end times and about a future temple which will be built later on. Okay, So we have to understand these things are talking about two different things here. Um, there's different questions. We saw different questions being asked, different areas being talked about. Um, and we see in Matthew 24... I'm going to give you some, let's go, let's go down some of these scriptures here to show you that I believe it's only talking about the end times. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. This is Matthew 24 now. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So we have nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Okay. Uh, we also have in verse 9, then they would deliver you up to tribulation and kill you and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Uh, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulations that has not been, uh, not since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. It's talking about being saved in the end. If AD 7 had to be shortened for the elect to be saved, then why is it still going on past them? Okay? Uh, verses 29-31, you see, immediately after the tribulation of those days, days being talked about right before that, immediately after that, the sun will be darkened. That didn't happen. The moon will not give us light. The moon still giving us light. Their stars will fall from heaven. They're still up there. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from one, from the four four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. And so we see that the tribulation that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24, all the way through verse 28, is the tribulation happening in the last days, because immediately after that tribulation of those days, the moon will be darkened. The sun, the sun uh, will. The sun will be. Well, it doesn't say that here, but the sun will turn. Uh, well, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It'll be blood red, according to Revelation. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken, and then Christ will appear, and all the tribes of earth will see him. There's not some secret or spiritual return of Jesus, where he's just appearing in heaven and just. You know, appearing in some spiritual, mystical way. He's appearing so all the tribes of the earth see him. And he'll come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This isn't some secret or private revealing of Jesus Christ. He's coming that everyone will see him. And he will send his angels to gather together the elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So these things didn't happen in AD 70. Okay, so Matthew 24 
is, re- is referring to the end times. Okay, let's go to Luke 21. And Luke 21, as, I, as I'm proposing to you, is about both. Okay, and let me tell you which parts are about A.D. 70. Verses 12 through 24 are about A.D. 70. And like I said, I'll get to the history in a minute here. Give you some stuff from Josephus and Eusebius. But that is talking about A.D. 70. The destruction of the temple that they were looking at. They were looking at the stones of, of it. And just saying not one stone should be left upon another and should not be thrown down. Yes. Verse 12 of Luke 21 through verse 24. It's all talking about AD 70, the very temple that they were just looking at. But verses 8 through 11 and verses 25 through 36 are talking about the end times. Now let me prove it to you. So they're asking this question. And the question in verse 7, like I'm, I'm telling you, is about the temple, about when that will happen. But Jesus doesn't answer that question right away. He doesn't answer the question right away. He says in verse 8, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many will come on name, saying, I am he, the time is drawn near, therefore do not go after them. When you hear of wars and commotions, do not be terrified, for these things must come to pass first, but then the end will not come immediately. So the end. He's talking about the end there. And then in verse 10, it says very, something very similar to says in Matthew 24. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes in various places, and famines, and pestilences, and there'll be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. It's all talking about the end times. Now, verse 12, here's a transition. But before all these things, there's a transition right there. He's going back. It's kind of like having a, uh, a flashback. Okay? That's what I want you to. You can even put it in parentheses from verse 12 to verse 24 if you wanted to, because it's all like a flashback. He's going back to the actual question now. He's going to answer. So right now in verses 8 through 11 and then verses 25 through 36, he's prompting them, I believe, to ask him the question to ask him in Matthew 24, 3 later on, on Mount Olivet. The question's about the end time because he wants to reveal that information to them as well that's very important. Not only for them, but for them to teach other people, other people all the way to the end so the people who are around today and in the latter times will be prepared. So they can watch and pray as the admonition is at the end of this discourse. Okay? So before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, probably before kings and rulers for my name's sake, but it will turn out for an occasion for your testimony. It will set on your mind, your hearts, before, uh, your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. This is very similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 10, by the way. When he's speaking to just his 12 disciples. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends. They will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Now here's a very crucial point here. I'm going to go to Matthew 24 here in a second for verse 20. It says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies... Then know its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea. Now this is, when should they flee? When they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, you know its desolation is near. Then, when you see it surrounded by armies, then, in fact the Greek word there is tate, and it means at that time. At that time, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. 
and let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance that all things were written may be fulfilled. Days of vengeance. Interesting. Turn back to Luke 19 for a second. In verse 41. We see something very similar being said here. Now as he drew near, talking about Jesus, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you do not know the time of your visitation. Very same thing being talked about here. So we see here, when should they depart from Judea and flee to the mountains and let those who are in the midst of her depart and not go back to Jerusalem if you're in the country? When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Let's go back to Matthew 24. Let's see when Jesus in this discourse, which I'm telling you, is talking about the end times only when he tells them to flee Judea. And not only Judea, but I think he's telling beyond that to flee other places as well. Starting in verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then, taught they again, at that time, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. So we see different things being said here. I think it's not just talking about Jerusalem here. It mentions Jerusalem. But it's also talking about those on their housetop, those in the field, not to go back and get their possessions, to flee right then. And of course, I'm assuming we're going to know where to flee too. We're not going to get into that right now. But when when in, in verse 15 and 16 does Jesus tell people who he's speaking in this situation to flee? Abomination and desolation. That's when someone stands in the temple of God declaring himself to be God. So, there's a problem with that. Because you see the army surrounded. Have they entered Jerusalem yet? So if they haven't entered Jerusalem, have they entered the temple? Have someone declared himself to be God in the temple of God? You've got two different time periods here. And let me give you some let me give you some history here, a history lesson on this situation from about that time, from starting in AD sixty six and going through AD seventy, so you can understand why if Matthew twenty four couldn't possibly be talking about AD seventy couldn't possibly be talking about the past. It must be talking about the future. Okay? AD 66, Roman general Cestius Gallus led an attack on the Jews to squash their revolt. You see, the pagan Greeks were going in front of Jewish synagogues in uh, Israel and offering animal sacrifice in front of their synagogues, and the Roman government, who the Jews were under, were doing nothing about it. So it made them very upset. They revolted against it. And so a Roman general named Cestus Gallus came to squash that revolt. And he was doing a pretty good job of it. When he got to Jerusalem, for some reason that no one can explain, I've I've read different historians on this, different uh, commentators, and no one can explain why all of a sudden, when he he surrounded Jerusalem, he left. He was winning the war. He was winning the battle. The Jews didn't stand a chance, if you look at it from an objective perspective. But he left anyway. And when he left, he retreated to the sea, the Jews ambushed him on all sides. He lost thousands of soldiers. And Rome was just very upset about this. 
very upset. So, guess what? Cestus Gallus, you're not going to lead the next revolt. You're not going to lead the, the um, not the next revolt, but the next uh, attack against the revolters. Um, you're kind of got to step down now. Now they call it a Vespasian. Okay? This is Nero, and this is about AD 66. So that happened in AD 66. Okay? And history tells us that after uh, Cestus Gallus left Jerusalem, they had it surrounded. After they left, guess what all the Christians did? They fled. They ran for their lives. Uh, they went about 30 miles northeast to a town called Pella on the other side of the Jordan River, which is in the mountains, wouldn't you know? Okay? But Emperor Nero uh, appointed General Vespasian to cross the rebellion since Gallus had been defeated. So Vespasian and his son, Titus, who is also a leader in this war, uh, with more than 60,000 soldiers, decided to attack the Jewish nation again. They were making their way back to Jerusalem. They had it surrounded. And then Nero killed himself in 68, committed suicide as the emperor. After a couple of unsuccessful emperors in Rome, uh, some of the Roman generals around the world and their army started to declare Vespasian as the new Roman emperor and give them his support, their support to him. And saying, yeah, we want you to be emperor. Because all the other emperors, they had two or three within a year's time, weren't working out. He said, we want you to be the emperor. And once he got enough military support, he decided to take them up on their offer. And he left the Jewish war about in AD 69. So he left. He, did, he didn't destroy Jerusalem at that point in time. He left up to his son Titus to destroy them instead. And they were having, and really Vespasian was having a hard time getting through the walls, these great walls that Jerusalem had around it, uh, getting through it. So it was kind of a stalemate when Vespasian was leading the, uh, the attack against the Jews. But Titus, um, he decided to build a wall, an embankment around Jerusalem and let no food in, but nothing in there. And it became pretty bad. In fact, let me just uh, depart from this right now. Let's go to Eusebius. Eusebius is a church historian. He, he wrote around the early, four, uh, early fourth century. And let me read to you what he said first about the Christian people who left, uh, left Jerusalem. Before the war began, uh, this is about the state Vespasian's war, members of the Jerusalem church were ordered by an oracle given by revelation to those worthy of it to leave the city and settle in a city of Perea called Pella. Here they migrated from Jerusalem as if once holy men had deserted the royal capital of the Jews and the whole land of Judea, that the judgment of God might finally fall on them for their crimes against Christ and his apostles, utterly blotting out all that wicked generation. And so, similar to Lot leaving Sodom and Gomorrah. God will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. It wasn't until Lot left that he rained down fire from heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's what you see is saying here, that the people left that city, and it wasn't until after they were gone, because they were obeying the instruction given by Jesus in Luke 21, they left, it was only then that the Roman army came back and judgment fell upon that, that city and the nation as a whole. Let me read to you some of the things that were going on inside the city of Jerusalem um, while Titus had an embankment, a wall built all the way around the city so things could not get in or out. Okay, Some of this is pretty gruesome, but uh, I think it's, it's, it would be interesting to, to know these things. The best of friends wrestled with each other for even the shadow of food. Others mouthed agape from hunger like mad dogs, 
staggered along, beating on the doors like drunken men and breaking into the same houses two or three times in a single hour in their hapless state, forgetting they had already tried to break into those houses. They put their teeth into everything, swallowing things even the filthiest animals would not touch. Finally, they devoured even belts and shoes or gnawed at the leather they stripped from their shields. Some fed on wisps of old hay, for there were people who gathered straw and sold a tiny bunch for four attic drachmas. But why even why speak of the inanimate things that hunger drove them to eat? I shall now relate something unparalleled in the annals of Greece or any other country. Indeed, horrible to tell and incredible to hear. I would gladly have admitted this tragedy lest posterity suspect me of having fabricated it, but the countless witnesses of my own generation support me. There's a woman named Mary, the daughter of Eliezer, who lived beyond the Jordan, a village of Bethazor. She was well known for family and wealth and had fled to Jerusalem with the rest of the population, where she was trapped in the siege. The Parson chiefs seized most of the possessions she had brought from Perea, and their bodyguards plundered the rest of her property and food through daily raids. In fury, she cursed the looters. When none of them killed her either, in anger or pity, she yielded to rage and hunger. Defying nature, she took her own baby boy, whom she was suckling, and said, Poor little mite, why do I keep you alive in war, famine, and rebellion? If we live, we're Roman slaves, but hunger will overtake slavery, and the partisans are worse than both. Come, be my food, an avenging fury to the rebels and the one story of Jewish suffering that the world must still hear. With these words, she killed her son, then roasted him and ate half, hiding the rest. At that moment, the partisans arrived, and smelling the unholy aroma, threatened her with instant death if, if they were not given what she had prepared. She replied that she had saved a fine helping for them, and uncovered the remains of her child. Overcome with horror, they were stupefied at the sight. But she said, This child was my own, and the deed is mine too. Eat, for I also have eaten. Don't be more squeamish than a woman, or more tender-hearted than a mother. But if you're queasy and disapprove of my sacrifice, then since I have eaten half, you may as well leave me the rest. They went away trembling, cowards for the first time, who scarcely gave up even this food. But horror immediately filled the entire city, everyone seeing the tragedy before his own eyes, and shuddering as if the crime were his own. The starving sought death and envied those who had realized it before seeing or hearing these outrageous atrocities. You see how bad it got in Jerusalem as their city was surrounded uh, in AD 69, AD 70 by Titus and the uh, Roman soldiers. It got so bad a mother ate her own child. And um, it goes on to, uh, as he finally attacks Jerusalem and he destroys their city, destroys their temple, uh, that about 1.1 million Jews were killed during this time. And so, by the time, the, you know, by the time uh, Titus stood in the temple and, and did what's likened to an abomination desolation, there weren't many people left. Um, there definitely wasn't time to flee. Okay, so the fleeing time, if we're talking about AD 70, must have happened before they entered the city, before they destroyed the city, before they came to the temple. Okay, it must have happened before then. Okay, so Luke 21 and Matthew 24 can't possibly be giving the same directions about the same situation because of that very thing. Okay, and so we see that uh, in Matthew 24 that all the nations 
rise up against each other. The gospel is preached in all the world to all the nations. And that in Matthew 24, 15 through 16, it's too late to flee the temple when it's being destroyed. Uh, that Jesus uh, didn't return in AD 70, as Matthew 24, 27 says. And that there were no signs, wonders, and a gathering together of the saints, as Matthew 24, 29 through 31 talks about. But neither can Luke 21 also be talking about only AD 70, because of what we saw in, in Luke 21, verses 9 and 11, the end, nations rising as nations, uh, fearful sights and great signs in the heaven. But then we see in at the end of this part that I'm saying is about AD 70, verses 12 through 24, in verse 24 we see a transition once again. We saw a transition into that in verse 12, but before all those things. Now we see a transition out of it in verse 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and, and be led away captive into all the nations, talk about the Jewish people, and Jerusalem be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, here's the question. Are, is Jerusalem still being trampled by the Gentiles? Yes. Sure is. So those times are not fulfilled. And so the things that it's about to talk about, which happen after that, can't be talking about AD 70 either. Because it's still being trampled upon by Gentiles. Now in verse 25, you see the, the cosmic signs again. There'll be great, there'll be signs in the sun, in the moon, and in the stars. Now on the earth, the stress of nations, plural there, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, Tate again, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So the things talked about in verse 25 or 26, at that time, the Son of Man will come in cloud with power and great glory. And so, verse 25 and 26 can't be talking about AD 70, which 12 through 24 are talking about, because at that time, the Son of Man did not come on the clouds with power and great glory. Now, with that, listen to verse 28. And when these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your, hand, your heads, because your redemption draws near. Well, gee, if our redemption draws near in AD 70, it should be finished by now. See, this is talking about the end times. And then again, once, once again, we see... In verses 24 through 36, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And the day come upon you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. Watch therefore and pray always. We count the word to escape all these things, and will come to pass, that will come to pass, and to stand before the Son of Man. When do you stand before the Son of Man? When he comes back. The first resurrection is when the saints will stand before him. And who and who and who will come? Who will that day come upon unexpectedly? According to verse thirty-four, those who are carousing, who are drunken, and who are, have the cares of his life. But he says, "Watch therefore and pray, because this will come as a snare upon all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth." Once again, not talking about AD seventy. Couldn't possibly talk about that. It's the face of the whole earth. Did, did what happened in AD seventy come upon a snare upon the face of the whole earth? Did it even come upon a snare as, as those are in Jerusalem? They were out. They were in Jerusalem for a long time before they finally were destroyed. They had war after war after war with the Roman people because of their revolts against their subjection to them. And so we can see that Luke 21 and Matthew 24, they have some similarities. But just because two pastors have similarities not mean they're the same exact discussion. Okay? And hopefully you can see in verses 12 
through 24 of Luke 21, Jesus is referring to AD 70. What happened then? Which I just read to you from Eusebius, who is quoting from Josephus, the Jewish historian. But he also, in verses 8 through 11, and verses 25 to 36, talks about the end times, obviously from the language. And that, if this conversation, which I'm proposing to you, happened before they left the temple courts, then verse 3, the questions being asked make more sense now. Because the last things Jesus talked about in Luke 21 are the end time things. Because he goes back to it. And that's why in verse 3 it says, tell us when will these things be? What things? What are the last things they talked about? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so Matthew 24 is completely talking about, from beginning to the end of this discourse, is talking about only um, the end times. And in fact, if you go to Mark 13, which is I think is a is a counterpart to Matthew 24, talks about this as well, uh, he's actually talking to four apostles privately in Matthew 24, not to all the apostles. Okay, Mark thirteen three. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, "Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled?" And then he goes on to talk about it. And so we we see, hopefully you can see pretty clearly why these are two different conversations. And um, and we'll get into next week Matthew twenty four about different views of the end times and why they don't fit with what Matthew 24 is saying. But one view called amillennialism, which means A negates, millennium means a thousand years, no literal a thousand year reign, okay, which is coming from Revelation 20, they believe there's no literal thousand year reign of Christ. Okay? Um, and so because they believe that, they take Matthew 24 and Luke 21 to be the same exact conversation and both to be talking about AD 70 only. Okay, And so you can see, just from the outset, before we even get into Matthew 24 and really look at it detailed, that Matthew 24 and Luke 21 are not talking about the same thing. Not possible. Okay? All right, well, let's make sure I've covered everything I want to cover. No literal millennium. It's, it's, a, it's a figurative thing. Yeah, they would take the scripture, and Peter talks about a thousand years being like a day, a day like a thousand years. That's just a, you know, it's not, it's not a literal thousand years that Christ is reigning on earth. That Christ is reigning from from heaven right now. So that's what they would say. But we'll we'll, we'll get more into um, some of the other different views. Maybe talk some preterism a little bit next week. Uh, Amillennialism. I mean. If you want to know a lot about amillennialism, there's a debate online between Tim Warner and Chuck Doughty where they go back and forth for four days and for about three to four hours every night. And so you'll, you'll, you'll get, get a lot about uh, this from them. But amillennialism is, is, is a view that's held by a lot of the church. I think probably the most popularized or, or uh, public view is pre-trib because of all the book left behind books and stuff like that, that's become a very popular or public view to have. Uh, and probably the least popular view, in my opinion, is probably the most biblical view, which is post-trib, pre-millennialism, which means Christ returns right before the millennium, a literal millennium, and we don't get raptured until the end of the the tribulation, which is when Christ returns. And it doesn't surprise me, it's the least popular view, 
or at least held to view, uh, because I think it's a biblical view. Um, there's also views like preterism. A lot of Calvinists hold to preterism or postmillennialism, but those are less popular views. They seem to be becoming more popular as the days go by. <clears throat> okay, so once again, we see Matthew 24 is, is all on at Mount of Olives. Luke 21 happens in the temple. I'm proposing that to you according to Luke 21, verse 37. Different questions being asked. Uh, Matthew's only about the end times. You saw that from the language. Luke is about both. Um, two different times are told to flee. Uh, one is only from Jerusalem, one is from everywhere, I believe. Um, and so we can see why both of them can't be about 87. We look from history, uh, what happened there and how this correlates with history as well and when the Christian people fled. Yeah? Did you say that uh, Matthew was talking about 70 AD and Luke's not talking about 70 AD? No, Matthew 24 is only talking about the end times. Matthew's only talking about the end times. Only the end not, times. Not 70 AD, no, Luke 21 70 talks about both. Okay. Um, AD 70 is Luke 21, 12 through 24. But the rest of Luke 21 is talking about the end times. <clears throat> so. You said that Matthew 24 is only talking about Yeah, but there's a gap there because they leave the temple area and go to the Mount of Olives in verse 3. Yeah. But he, I mean, that's just Jesus. I mean, I guess you could say Luke 2, Luke 2 I mean, Matthew 24, 2 is talking about 87. You're right about that. Yes. Thank you for that correction. Yes. Yeah. Um, I look at Luke 21, uh, which talking about the destruction of the temple uh-huh. in Jerusalem uh, under siege. And uh, I look at verse 23, it says, But woe unto those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days uh, for there would be a great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And I would say, I take that to mean uh, that gruesome account that you gave of the siege in Jerusalem that happened at that time. Yeah. And I would see that that's what that's talking about. But when I go to Matthew 24, that's right, yeah. there's a similar yep. uh, verse there uh, in, um, this, what is it? Verse 19. Yeah, verse 19 Mm -hmm. says, uh, But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Uh Uh, Then it says, I pray that your flight uh, may not be in winter or in Sabbath. Uh Now, the winter and the Sabbath, uh, to me, that kind of suggests, depending on what part of the world you're in, if you're in the northern hemisphere and it's wintertime, or if you're in the southern hemisphere and it's wintertime, or... Uh, Sabbath could be a different day of the week depending on what part of the earth you live on. Uh-huh. I could see see that, but what do you think it's talking about when it's saying the, the women that are pregnant there? Well, I mean, it's just think about practically speaking. It's hard to flee when you're carrying little children, uh, babies who can't run themselves. Mm-hmm. And only that, I mean, Paul uh, builds on this in uh, 1 Corinthians 7 because those who are nursing and, and have children or are pregnant, they're they're married. And so he's saying in 1 Corinthians 7, um, in verse, uh, let's see, 34, the difference between a wife and a virgin, the unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say is for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, 
but for what is proper, proper and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. And so, talking about serving the Lord without distraction, and Paul, in, in this, um, he says in verse 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. He's trying to, you know, trying to promote celibacy here, being one with the Lord and being completely focused upon Him. He's saying, but if you do marry, you haven't sinned. I'm not telling you you can't get married. Uh, you haven't sinned. So nevertheless, in the end of verse 28, nevertheless, such will say, uh, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. And in verse 29, but this I say, brethren, the time is short. So he's talking about persecution, enduring suffering, and he's trying to promote celibacy because, as, he's, as I read at first in verse 34, if you're celibate, if you're unmarried, your thoughts are completely focused upon the Lord. It's so in a time of danger, a time of suffering, a time of persecution. It's easier to be single. A lot easier. In fact, I was, we, me and Angel were just watching last night uh, a video about Richard Wormbrand and his, and his wife and his son. And the suffering that the wife went through because she didn't know where her husband was. Everyone was telling, me, telling her she, that he was dead. And then she was taken to captivity and then her son was left without two parents. And so, it would be easier. And this is something to really consider according to the scriptures. You know, I know we're all about having as many children as we can here. But if we really start seeing suffering happen, we ought to consider not having any more children. Those who are of age to get married, they really ought to consider and pray and see the Lord. Lord, do you really want me to be married? Or do you, have you given me this gift that you talked about in Matthew 19 that I don't have to be married? And I'm not burning. And maybe you just want me to be single. You know, the rest of my life. So I completely focus on you and I have this trouble that Paul's trying to save me from, that he would spare me from, uh, by not having, uh, not being married. And not only not being married, but uh, not having uh, more children. Yeah, it is preferred. I mean, Paul was celibate. He was single. But, he, I mean, he's not giving an absolute, you know, saying this is the best thing to do. He, he He's simply saying from his perspective, he, he would, you know, ask him to do that. And he says in the, at the beginning of verse Corinthians 7, he says in verse 6, but I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. So, um, for I wish that all men were, at, even as myself, single, but each one has his own gift from God, one in this man, another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. So, you know, that, that's the, the teaching from Paul and from Jesus about this marriage issue, about the end times. Uh, if you're burning, of course, it's better to marry, because if you burn with passion and you give into it without being married, now you're in sin, now you've departed from the faith. Now you're in greater trouble. That would be a worse trouble to be in than to be married and have children during persecution times, or during suffering times. Okay. That would be a worse situation to be in. So that, that's, that's what I think uh, verse 19 is referring to what? What do you think it's referring to? You have something different? Oh, I was just asking because okay. it, it just seems to be like parallel verses, and mm-hmm. obviously, you know, when you look at it, it's not a parallel verse. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you see what happened is so gruesome. What happened in the siege? Mm-hmm. So it just leads me to wonder: uh, Will similar gruesome things happen oh, during right. this time in the future right. that we really need to be aware of? That's really the only nature of my question. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be similar in this sense. It's going to be great suffering. Great suffering. There will be some saints who will escape for a time. Time and, time and half a time, as, as Revelation talks about. They'll escape into the wilderness. They'll be led by God. There'll be those who won't escape. You know, There's many different reasons I can think of why they won't escape, but 
uh, it'll be difficult no matter what. Even if you are escaping, it'll be more difficult on you to carry little children and to be nursing them. If you barely are having food for yourself, if I have to suffer and not eat, I can handle it. But if I'm a woman and I'm trying to nurse a baby, I have no something to give a baby. And the baby has nothing to eat. It doesn't have any teeth. It can't eat the same things I eat. It has to have some kind of liquid or some for it. And so it becomes more and more difficult for a woman who's nursing. Yes, brother. Uh, I'm a Hancock, maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm still historically ignorant on this. Uh, what year did they actually flee, you know, Christians before the 70 AD, do we know? Um, well, AD 66 is the year they fled. Okay. That's when Cestius Gallus attacked and then he retreated. Okay, AD 67 was Vespasian started his attack, starting with Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem, and he made it to uh, Jerusalem in AD 68. But history tells us they fled in AD 66, the end of AD 66. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then, kind of a, and this is, um, I'm at 24, 15, mm-hmm. then we didn't really get here. We, we talked about it a little bit, the abomination of desolation. So mm-hmm. we're talking, you think this is not the same thing Daniel's talking about since he said Titus stood in the temple? What did he do? I don't know about it. Um, I don't really know much about it either, personally. But um, this has happened several times in history. Okay, uh, but just because it happened several times does not mean this is referring to the time that happened right after it. You know, so we need to keep in mind for that. In Daniel, um, you know, he he talked about this in Daniel twelve or Daniel nine, I believe, Daniel nine, and um, and he was seeing something before. He was seeing it happen before the temple was even built. The temple was destroyed at that point in time. Had already been destroyed. Um, and one more, one more note, an, an interesting fact to, to relate to you is the very day and month the temple was destroyed in AD 70, the same day and month that it was destroyed by the Babylonian emperor. Same day and month, according to history. So this is another interesting fact. It really had nothing to do with what we were talking about. Something I found out while I was studying this. And this might tie in the last comment I guess kind of have based on Luke 2128. I'm kind of, I'm wondering if, because I've read like Gnostic comments, this might go into more of our next week discussion, but mm-hmm. didn't they teach something like they meshed this together too, and they would teach like, you know, redemption's already happened. That's why we have Christians thinking Christ already came back into his second Thessalonians, or first Thessalonians, I can't remember which one he warns me, he says, no, it hasn't happened yet. Right. Well, weren't Gnostics teaching something like the redemption already happened? Um, I'm not sure if the Gnostics believe the redemption's already happened. I, I, they believe they can't lose their salvation. Um, they believe that the flesh and spirit are separate, and so you, it, when your flesh is sinning, you're sinning. Your spirit isn't becoming defiled, and so you're still saved. And so they believe that while they're actually in sin, they weren't sinners. Which was First John one is, is addressing. Um, so in that sense, they might have believed believe that they were saved. I, I don't know what they believed about. The comments said like they think the redemption already happened. Or something's yeah. something in my mind where a Christian was rebuking them and saying they think. Maybe from Justin Martyr or from Irenaeus. And I'm wondering if that's maybe kind of a where we got this branch of teaching of redemption's already happened in preterism. You know, the Gnostics were going around saying, "Look, you already got destroyed. It's already happened." Right. Well, I mean, our millennialism uh, definitely has its roots in Gnosticism. No doubt about that. I don't know about preterism though. Preterism. Says that Christ is ruling, and, and I, th- I think they believe He is going to come back eventually. But uh, but we'll, we'll get more into these other views next week, and, and talking about that. I may just take one view a week or something like that, and just kind of stick with this chapter for a while. There's lots of false teaching out there about this, and it's amazing how they, they twist these things. It's a lot of confusion. Mr. Good. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, a guy asked, was it talking to the other day at work? And he said, if someone asked him, how do you know that Jesus hasn't came back 
yet already. Yeah. And he's actually a preacher of right for dying. I said, well, if you actually believe in preacher of right, it could be a secret. You never, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Second Thessalonians chapter two, which which Brother uh, Sean I think is referring to, says, uh, "Not to be soon shaken in mind or trouble, either by spirit or by the word or by letter, as if from us, until the day of Christ would come, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the fall awake of first, the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition is opposed, and exalts himself above all, and is called God or is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God." Himself that he is God. Yeah. yeah, which, I mean, that was written before A.D. 70, so people who believe that could still use that for their position. But uh, I think, I mean, the way you can know Christ doesn't come back is because the cosmic signs haven't happened yet. Uh, because his coming, everyone will see it, all the tribes of the earth will see it, it says. And so, but even the preacher, I mean, if I was pre-trib and someone asked me, I'd say, well, I haven't seen a bunch of clothes laying around anywhere with people being gone. That's what they believe. And so I, I, I'd probably respond like that if I was preacher of rapture. But the fact is, these signs which Jesus told us to watch, therefore, and pray, to watch for and pray about so we'd be prepared when he returns, so he wouldn't come back as a thief in the night for us. Uh, these signs haven't happened. In verse 8 of the same chapter says, When the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord will consume the breath of his mouth and destroy the Christ who is coming. Right. So that completes the thought. They twist it somehow. I can't remember how they twist it. They they, they say that that the brightness of his coming is just destroying the temple. I don't know. They, but I understand what you're saying. I agree with you. Second Thessalonians is not talking about that. But they find ways to twist these things. So yeah. uh, I mean, there's many problems with uh, amillennialism and preterism. But when you look in the Old Testament, I think it's in Isaiah and Zechariah, where it talks about the millennial reign. Uh, that Jesus is going to uh, rule with a rod of iron and that he is going to uh, reinstitute the Feast of Tabernacles. And that anyone who does not come and, and do the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, there's going to be no rain on that nation. Uh, those things just simply have not happened. Uh, and those are specifically talking about the reign of Jesus Christ. So if you're on millennials and you think that some kind of mystically Jesus is reigning from heaven but he's not reigning with a rod of iron because we have places like uh, Las Vegas and, and uh, New Orleans that we go to preach at sometimes that are so wicked uh, if Jesus was ruling with a rod of iron then he's not doing a very good job of it yeah. uh, so that, that, that right there just shows it's just not taking place right. uh, we're not forced to do the, the Feast of Tabernacles that's not happening right. uh, you know, and there hasn't been any droughts over a nation because of it right uh, so, when you apply the whole of Scripture to these ideas, you see how they all just collapse in upon themselves. They do not hold up under the whole of the Scripture on, on the issue. Amen. Then you have the Dominion theology, which I haven't said a lot of this because if you want to, we'll, we'll take over right now. Postmillennialism. Yeah. That's postmillennialism. Yep. We're going to reign right now. Right yep. He, he comes a- after the, once after his kingdom is set up on earth, then he comes back and takes it. There's no squashing his enemies, like it says in Revelation. There's not, not even him doing that kind of stuff or them destroying those armies that camp against him and having the birds there feed on their flesh. It's us taking over and then him coming back and taking over what we have taken over. we got to help him out. Yeah. Which is where a lot of stuff, I mean, it's where, you know, why Calvin did what he did with destroying heretics. It's why when 
the people came over to America, they decided to kill off the Indians because they thought they were the new Israel and they were destroying the Canaanites. You know, all kinds of stuff like that happening. They, they thought they were supposed to rule over people and set up his kingdom on earth. And from there, he'll take over eventually. And that's why you see a lot of people with that perspective getting involved in politics. Which we shouldn't be really being involved in at all. Let the kings in this world do what they want to do. We need to follow Christ. referring to is that whenever Jesus comes back you know he's going to reap the entire earth and when you're in different parts of the world like uh, today is Sunday today here in the United States but in Jerusalem it's not Sunday anymore it's a different day so we're on different sides of the planet and also uh, right now we're getting ready to enter into summer uh, coming out of spring entering into summer here on this side of the planet up here where we're at in Kentucky if you go in South America, they're getting ready to enter into winter. Right. So depending on what hemisphere you live in and what part of the planet you live on, uh, you know, it could come on a Sabbath, it could come in the winter, uh, it could come in the summer, it could come on a different day. Uh, it's not you're just saying pray it doesn't happen on these days, uh, you know, uh, because of the difficulty of traveling. Well, 